startups weren't even a thing in rural Pennsylvania. You know, like I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know there was a tech industry. I didn't know what software was. No one around me was white collar. Eventually someone in my business class was like, Nick, have you ever heard of startups? And I was like, no, what is that? You know? Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 112. Today, we're talking about accelerating the pace of innovation and hardware manufacturing. And we're going to be trying something new this week, and actually next week and later this week as well. We are doing our first ever mega episode, as I'll call it. It's a three-part interview with Nick Pinkston, who in my opinion is one of the most fascinating people in the manufacturing world. Now, he's been on my radar for this podcast for a long time. We're talking like really three plus years. And when he first approached me with this idea of doing a longer episode to cover a lot of topics, I was like, well, you know, Nick is the perfect person to try this idea on for size with. Now, I know some of you listening already know Nick, but if you're not familiar with him, I could dive into his history about leading hardware and manufacturing startups, how he was really on the cutting edge of manufacturing while everyone else was paying attention to pure software. But more than anything, what I'll say is that he's one of the most passionate people I know when it comes to all things manufacturing and tech and the maker movement in general. And I feel confident in saying that really comes across in these interviews. I also can't forget to mention that he's currently the founder and CEO of Volition, a marketplace dedicated specifically to industrial components, which you're going to hear about more in a little bit. So I mentioned that this is a three-part trilogy and part one, today's episode, is really backstory. Part two will really focus on Nick's perspectives on manufacturing and on hard tech startups and on the future of the industry in general. Then finally, in part three, we'll hear about Nick's experience with his previous startup, Plethora, which you'll hear him reference a few times today. Honestly, part three is a big, detailed story where you can learn a lot about the realities of startups, particularly manufacturing startups. But today, we're setting the stage. So here are three things that you can expect from this episode. First, we'll hear about Nick's background, what it was like growing up, being surrounded by manufacturing, and starting his career in Pittsburgh and beyond. Second, we'll also get a taste of Nick's perspectives on manufacturing, discussing his mission and his thoughts on accelerating innovation and the way manufacturing is done. Finally, we'll also learn a bit about his new company, Volition, which he's going to tell you all about here in a second. We also do another thing pretty differently in this episode, which is, aside from this being three parts long, we also took audience questions that were submitted in advance. Now, there's not much of that in part one here, but you'll definitely get a lot of that in parts two and three. And by the way, we do give shout outs to the folks that did submit questions, so you just might hear your name in these next episodes. Finally, if you want to learn more, and there are a lot of resources and references in this episode, go to the show notes page that's at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 112. You can access everything that we talk about there. Finally, if you want to take part in conversations like this, if you want to take part in discussions around future episodes and submit questions, well, hey, a great spot to do that is the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group lives on LinkedIn. I run it. It's over 600 manufacturing leaders strong, and we'd love to have you in there. If you want to join, shoot me a message on LinkedIn and just go to manufacturinghappyhour.com community. It'll take you right to that page on LinkedIn. Okay. 
it's time to kick off the first episode of our conversation with a very important question that honestly I never really had a great answer to until today. Until today. All right. So the, the first question then is, do you consider Pittsburgh the Midwest? I want to hear this from someone that's <laughs> so, from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. So I would say that like the Appalachian Mountains is where the East Coast ends and the Midwest begins. Mm. And so I think that what happens is, is like all the people who cross those mountains have a different personality. You know what I mean? Because there's just like a different like settler. That was like the old West you know, and so totally different groups of people culturally were there in Pittsburgh, you know, drains in the Mississippi, right? So the Ohio River goes through there. So it's almost like one of the starting points and it ends up in St. Louis and St. Louis is like the end of the Midwest and the beginning of the West because the other side of the Mississippi. So I feel like these two, like the mountains and the, and the river of the Mississippi bound the Midwest. And yeah, it goes all the way up to Canada and probably down to like the Ohio border on Kentucky, which I think is also um, the Ohio River. But um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that, that so first of all that that Appalachian cutoff is the best like geographic description I've ever heard right because I always <laughs> say you know because I, I, I have everywhere I go I always have a bunch of friends from Pittsburgh I don't know why you guys move around really effectively but yeah yeah <laughs> it, it's always like they they don't want to be called the Midwest but they're not really the East Coast but the vibe is certainly more if I had to say what East versus Midwest it's certainly more Midwest in Pittsburgh. Yeah, that, that's how I see it for sure. Um, and, and, you know, where I'm from, I'm right outside of Youngstown, Ohio. So I grew up in, in like middle of nowhere outside of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Shenango Township. So I'm from like the sticks and we were way more like Ohio. Like, you know, Ohio was closer than Pittsburgh, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I love Pittsburgh. It's a fun town. And actually, let's pretend we're in Pittsburgh for a second as we start this off. It's manufacturing happy hour. And this is going to be a long interview. So I'm probably going to reset and ask you this question again for California. If we were in Pittsburgh, where would we be having a drink right now? Whether it's a cafe, brewery, you oh, take your man. pick. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, it's it's like the stuff that I used to do like 11 years ago is probably not even there anymore. I mean, the classic place, the stereotype is Primani Brothers, um, which is, you know, is like the sandwich that we invented. Um, I really like the Church Brew Works, which is a converted like cathedral or giant church into a microbrew situation. And there's just like on the altar are these huge vats, you know. Um, it's a pre- it's a pretty cool one. And the beer is actually really good. Um, so I feel like that's really good. Um, yeah, there's so many good things in Pittsburgh and it just keeps getting better. But yeah, that's that's definitely a fun spot. Yeah, I haven't been to Church Brewworks yet. Uh, Grist House and Dancing Gnome are two that stick out that they've probably come up in the past 10 years with the craft. Yeah, beer, like but... I don't even know those. <laughs> that's like post me leaving. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I started going to Pittsburgh more because it's become such a, a robotics hub, a maker hub. Yeah, I mean, this totally. was it was already coming up, this, and, and you know this firsthand. I don't need to tell you this. But anyway, I started traveling there more, so I got to, to check these things out. So in the case of this conversation, let's say we're hanging out at Church Brew Works, and I'm going to ask you, and I want you to answer this as if we're having a drink with one another there. I kind of look at you, and this is my generalization from my research, is like yeah, the yeah, future yeah. of hardware guy, like where we're going in manufacturing. How do you summarize your singular mission as if we're having a drink with one another? You know, it's funny. Like, I think that I zoom, I, I, I zoom way out in this, and I'm like, okay, 
what what is the purpose of technology you know and for me um I, I really think that like i look at things like the singularity and shit like this and like like human empowerment and i think like yeah technology is tools technology is standard of living and i look at like what's what is and isn't being done right now so like on the one hand we can we can talk about like me growing up in like a very hardware manufacturing family and so i just happen to love it but also, I think that like everyone's working on software now. Everyone knows that. So like if you do a software thing and you're trying to make software better, um, it's you and 10,000, 100,000 other people who are starting companies to do that. So like you better have something really unique or else someone else is already going to do it. And they probably already are, you know. So like me working in like fundamental AI right now would probably be a lot of fun. But like, I don't know if I'm really adding that much versus all the geniuses that are already doing it, you know? And so when I was in the manufacturing world, I was like, well, no one cares about this. I mean, when I started in Pittsburgh, you know, I mean, one, like even startups in general in Pittsburgh weren't that big of a deal. But um, but everyone was like, why don't you do something simple, like not the hardest thing, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, I had a, a software for hardware company there, right? And like, that was the start. But yeah, I think it's like hardware is this thing that like, even if the AI becomes sentient, tomorrow there's it's not gonna be able to help us build anything you know like all of our factories are still old school and so my whole mission for me is just to accelerate the pace of innovation and specifically hardware manufacturing how do we take an idea in your brain prototype it test it build the factory for it ship it you know the whole thing how, how do we do that and make that really easy you know um so like yeah if there's one thing it's like how do you build tools to do that you know it's kind of like all all the theme of my companies and things like this you know and, and democratizing it how does smaller and smaller groups of people do it you know i'm sick of like big companies being able to be the only ones who can do it you know yeah and this is going to be kind of the theme for the first part of our marathon of an interview today but uh, i'm going to jump ahead a little bit and ask another question because you're you're on a new adventure right now you founded you're the founder and ceo co-founder and ceo of volition you know, how would you describe that again? If you were having a drink with someone, how do you describe what Volition does? I mean, fundamentally, like we are organizing the world's parts, right? I mean, it's a marketplace where on the one side, there's all these like engineers and supply chain folks trying to find the right parts at the right price and, you know, everything else. And so we have to go on the other side and say, okay, there's all these suppliers who are, you know, maybe way better at, um, you know, creating servo motors than they are at internet marketing or, you know, supply chain and, and these kind of things. And so how can we help bring those suppliers into the digital world? Um, and, and a big part of that, like the hardest part of that is actually the data side. So it's like, Right now, last I looked, we have like 9 million products on the platform. And, you know, making that useful for engineers where it's just not like spec soup, you know, is really challenging because there's hundreds of thousands of different attributes, like spec types, you know, that are across all these things. And so we actually have to organize that shit. So that, that's actually the really hard part. And so, yeah, if we do that, which we roughly are there, um, you know, an engineer can go in and say, I need a servo motor. It needs to have this encoder, this power, you know, all these parameters. And it's like, cool, here's the world, you know, and then integrate them into your CAD and various systems and, you know, just making that everywhere. Um, that, that's really the point. And if you can do that, then I feel like we're like just clearing this really opaque world, you know, because even like, you know, someone who's like a giant vendor, like a Parker Hannafin or someone, you go on their site and it's like, Here's a lot of PDFs, great information. Like, you know, these guys have made, they put in the work, they have all that stuff. It's just really hard to like really know the giant catalog of Parker Hannafin, let alone the like 40 companies that make the same thing in different slight variations. Um, really hard to explore that space. So people end up like kind of knowing a couple vendors well or having to call the support team. And I think those guys are gonna be around forever, the, the support people like doing that. So we're not trying to replace those people. We wanna take all the like, how do you know what company to even call? 
you know, or what product line to even ask about, or what's even available, you know, servos versus steppers or whatever. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff we want to help you with. And something when I was reading up on Volition that really stuck out to me was, and you, you kind of touched on it, right? For Amazon to do what they do, it's really easy for someone to go in and search for a t-shirt, right? There aren't too many <laughs> different specs on a t-shirt, but yeah, to yeah. search for complex parts and you're organizing all the world's parts here, that's another beast, right? So we're going to exactly. dive into that. We're going to dive into that here in a little bit, but this is going to be a fun interview because we actually had a lot of people submit questions for this one. We're going to get yeah, to yeah. those <laughs> probably like two, you know, a third of the way through the conversation, but there are a lot of people that might be getting to know you for the first time here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. So I got a very baseline question for you to, to get rolling. How did you get into hardware, right? What was an impactful moment growing up or in school or whatever it is that, that started your journey? You know, I grew up in a family of people where it was already in the family. You know, like my, my grandfather was a prototype machinist for Oldsmobile um, in the tool and die sort of area. Um, my uncle had a machine shop um, outside of Lansing, Michigan. And then my dad was like a production manager and like procurement guy. So like he would just take me into all these factories, you know, which was cool. And then, you know, literally like I think my earliest memory of this stuff was like a Richard Scarry, how does the world work? You know, with like the animals presenting everything. And they had these yes. cutaways of like a power plant and a steamship and, you know, this kind of stuff. And I was just fascinated immediately. And that must have been when I was like three or four, you know. And then I was like more of a science kid. So like my parents were very nice to like bring me to the library a lot. And I could just bring all these books home for free. This is pre-internet, right? So like, um, you know, and I have displayed out all the stuff. So I was really into that. And then I always liked building stuff, you know? And so, you know, I built, you know, throughout my early life, um, God, electronics, a lot of electronic kits when Radio Shack was still a thing and before the maker movement, um, you know, soldering all that stuff up then going into more like just general wood shop, you know, kind of stuff. Um, I used to make like rocket fuel and rockets. And so, you know, potassium nitrate and uh, confectioner sugar kind of stuff and used to be into chemistry. So I was just into experimenting all the stuff. But um, I always thought, because I was actually, you know, hence this futurist shit that I'm into. I read um, K. Eric Drexler's book, Engines of Creation, which is kind of like a fanciful view on nanotechnology, like nanobots, replicators, you know, very sci-fi. I'm not even sure if it's physically possible, but it was very inspiring to like a 10-year-old old me, you know, and I was like, how do we produce all these things? You know, in the book, it was almost like magic godlike powers of these nanobots or whatever. And when I started looking into it, I, my, my direction was wet nano, as in like biotech producing stuff. And so when I first went to school, like college, I studied that, you know, um, and I quickly was like, oh, wow, like this research is super not close, you know, and academia, like I thought I was going to be a professor. I never even, you know, it's funny, startups weren't even a thing in rural Pennsylvania, you know, like I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know there was a tech industry. I didn't know what software was. No one around me was white collar, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so it's funny, like I only realized after I quit that program and like disgust of like, I, I like always hated school my entire life. But, um, and then uh, I went to business school, which was basically like, I was going to quit college altogether and my parents were like you have to get something like you know i mean that's it's anathema for like me the first person going to college or whatever to quit right so i got my business degree which allowed me to have a ton of free time um you know in in pittsburgh which was great and then i eventually someone in my business class was like nick have you ever heard of startups and i was like no what is that you know and then it's it's funny because i liked business already i had like an amazon business i used to sell shit on amazon and all sorts of other stuff you know back when i was like 17 and um and i never put the two together never knew it was like oh you can start a tech company and you know i could program because i had to program the engines and the cars that i would do stuff with you know when i would make like uh turbo systems you have to reprogram the engine and i would build my engine computers but um 
yeah, it's kind of funny. So that, that's kind of how I get into it. It's like, okay, manufacturing is kind of around. I love making shit, but I was like, whoa, making shit's hard. When I made my first turbo kits and had to weld them up and do all that shit by hand, I was like, whoa, like this is really expensive. I had to start a business just to afford the parts for the car, you know? Um, so cars were actually a big thing for me when I was 17 to like 22, um, of like learning how to build shit for real, like real mechanical stuff that had to like not blow up, you know, (laughs) this, this all checks out, right? You probably have the best checklist of things that qualify you to be like someone that loves hardware at the end of the day, between your family, between your hobbies, education, all of that. Love that story. Another area I want to get some baseline on, and, and it, you mentioned it right at the start. You want to make a different type of factory. I've heard you say this before. I think yeah. you might have paraphrased it in our interview. There was an image that I saw in one of your presentations where you compare a Ford Model T line from 100 <laughs> years ago to a uh, Ford F-150 line today. And the point you make is that these still look very similar, even though they're 100 years apart. So tell us a bit about how this describes the current state of manufacturing and maybe some of the things you're trying to solve on top of it. Totally. I mean, I think that like the line paradigm is still useful. And what we're seeing between these is you might go to, a, a um, you know, instead of all making Model Ts, they all have the same options or whatever, like they did back then, pretty much. Um, you know, now you'll see a line that's like, the same, um, what is it, like car platform. And you might see like the, you know, like the extended version and the, you know, like different different cabs and stuff on an F-150, you know, all intermingled. That's cool. The, the main issue I think between this is like flexibility on the part level itself and on what's in there. So like a line is probably still the best way of doing make a million of them. You know, um, the issue is there's not a lot of variation because every piece of sheet metal has to go through a giant line of stamping dies. And that's millions of dollars probably just to set up a few parts on those. Right. And so to me, this thing of like the setup is actually fully manual still. It's like, okay, back in Henry Ford's day, a, a master sort of high priest die maker would, you know, make a progressive stamping line. Um, you know, with like files and feeler gauges and shit. And then, um, you know, they would do it. And you know what they do today? They CAD stuff up and use files and feeler gauges to like make it work. You know, like they're still hand polishing and working these dies in. And it's like a hundred years ago. So like, have we really progressed that much? And so I think only now, like, you know, plethora was one thing where the automated setup was the goal, right? And now there's all these things doing automated setup. I want like this reconfigurability just like computers have. And it's never going to be exactly the same because like atoms have to move around. But that's actually the minority of what like the sheet metal press is doing. Like, yeah, big hunks of tool steel are expensive and machine time on the thing that cuts them is expensive. But it's not actually the majority of the cost. It's just like humans everywhere, you know, doing this stuff. So like I'm interested in like how we could rapidly do that because even the stamping, if you had a progressive die line, if you're doing lean shit, you're doing under 10 minute change of die on a lot of that stuff. You're, you're trying to have that goal, right? And so it means the CapEx is going to amortize either way. So it's really just producing the dies and everything. So, you know, if you look at like Atomic right now, what they're doing, they're doing that for injection molding, right? And they're trying to figure out how to automate that. that that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. And if you built a factory that was dynamically reconfiguring both each individual part making line and then the assembly, that gets it sort of what I'm interested in, you know? So we have now these like, flex factories where a cell might be like, you know, maybe GM has a cell that's like, this will make 50 different pistons, you know, and it's got like a few different machines that actually like takes a blank and turns into a piston. But you had to pre-program all 50 of them. And there's a huge amount of setup cost on each one. Um, 
it's like, but it can't say program any cylindrical object, you know, in, in some pattern, in some universal, like you can make anything within a, a certain bounds way. That was the plethora goal, right? And I still think that's possible. But yeah, that, that's roughly the difference between what the F-150 and, and Model T plants are doing versus what I think we can do. Well, I think another comparison that made a lot of sense to me is you kind of want to make hardware more like software in a very lot true. of ways, right? For software, it's very easy to iterate, right? You can come out with a new revision. Um, yep. For manufacturing, the way we do it today, <laughs> it's not as easy. I think you also give the example of like CAD files. Those are based on kernels that were developed and, and kernels are like the base of the program, yes. right? That were developed like 40 years ago. And yeah. when you make a change down the line, it impacts everything else. And we need to be at a spot where you can rapidly change things and iterate as I'm hearing you suggest, correct? Totally, totally. Although I would say at Plethora, we were not fighting the CAD kernel. I mean, we were sometimes, there's weird issues I can get into, but you know, mostly it was actually just the technology to take the machinist brain and put it into a computer. That's, you know, like a little bit of light AI work kind of, I mean, we didn't use AI cause that did, didn't exist, but like, that's the kind of thing that you have to actually do to do it. And that's really hard. And, and we're going to talk about plethora a little bit later, but we'll get into it a little, a little bit now because I kind of want to get some of your background before volition. Um, yes. you know, there, you know, what were your formative moments while you were focused on three things that stick out to me in your career? Hack PGH, cloud fab or plethora maybe give us a quick baseline on what each of those are as you describe this journey yeah yeah totally i mean you know it's funny going to pittsburgh i think was the richest move that i've made i mean even more in many ways in san francisco like the gap between rural pennsylvania and a city like you know just weird stuff like i never knew cafes were a thing Someone's like, hey, meet me at this coffee shop. Like, what's a coffee shop? You know what I mean? Like, just funny. I mean, I'm like, oh, huh. Like, yeah, this makes sense. What Thai food is. I don't think I knew what Thailand was, you know? Sure. Um, so very insular. But like, you know, you go there and you discover um, a lot of things. And one thing I discovered was the open source movement. So funny enough, I was in like, of all things, a sociology class. And someone gives me a book by uh, 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 Neil Gershenfeld called, um, what is it? Fab, The Coming Revolution on Your Desktop. And this was his book from 2005. And I've since talked to Neil in his lab and everything. But um, um, you know, when I read this, it was like talking about the democratization of hardware and their like fab lab situation, which was like the proto makerspace, right? And so I was like, whoa, open source. Like I didn't know any of this hacker stuff. There was no software culture where I'm from. So Pittsburgh introduced me to that. And so the end result was I got into this. I started running like Linux as my normal OS and, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and then I found the maker movement. I visited a bunch of maker spaces and I was like, or I guess at the time we called them hacker spaces. Now everyone calls them maker spaces, but yeah, hacker spaces. And I was like, we need to bring this to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And so I ended up finding Matt, uh, Matt Stoltz, who was there, who was a hardcore maker even more than me. And, um, and I found a space and we made Hack Pittsburgh. And so that was the first thing of like the, you know, I was way more ideological. I was less business. It was a nonprofit, wasn't even a for-profit, you know, and, uh, and it's still going after like, I don't know, like 14 years or something. And, um, and yeah, the point was to be a community thing. And I've always been a community guy. I used to run all the tech events in Pittsburgh too, like software and hardware. I ran a bunch of, um, and so it just like a community space. And I think there, I, it's funny. I feel like I had this like rude awakening where, I was doing all this hobby stuff before and just kind of doing whatever I wanted school. I was like, kind of like smart enough to like kind of fuck around and not really um, have to worry about grades. So I was lucky in that regard, but it didn't teach me good work habits, you know? And so I get into this thing and I'm like, Oh shit, there's all this stuff and I have no idea what to do, you know? So like that was a wake up call. And then at the same time, people in Pittsburgh were like, Hey Nick, you should um, apply for um, our version of Y Combinator called Alpha Lab. 
And at Alpha Lab, um, you know, they they would um, you know give you like I think fifty grand or something, and uh, and do it. And so you know that was where I really found my co-founder Steve Klabnik, um, who's now like big in a bunch of programming circles. And so we um, made CloudFab from there. But it was the idea that like oh, Hack Pittsburgh's cool, but like we can't get access to really big cool stuff. You know, like we have a little our little you know soldering irons and oscilloscopes and stuff, but not much more. And so then CloudFab kind of came out of that. And I think we had no freaking clue what we were doing at CloudFab. And I don't think the mentorship um, in Pittsburgh, it, it really wasn't there. And we didn't even know to ask for it. And so we actually did make like an automatic quoting thing for 3D printing and got manufacturers on it and people were buying things. And we ended up selling it to a company um, in the Midwest up in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, it was fine. But I think it's funny. It's like a protozometry you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it, it was, you were like, pull, like it was in an, it was one of the original marketplaces, right? Am I making yeah. that up? And I think, you know, for the manufacturing happy hour audience, we talk about industry 4.0 and going beyond yeah. the four, <laughs> like the four walls of the factory, right? And I feel like you were kind of on the leading edge of that where it's like, we need to go beyond the four walls of the factory and see what our supply chain has. Am I on the right track for that? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of it from just like the, the you know, engineer or even hobbyist perspective sure. where it was like, there's all these cool things like, you know, like an SLS machine and all the stuff is like half a million dollars for the whole setup, you know, especially mm -hmm. back then. And I was like, how can we get access to that? Like, I just wanted access to that, you know? And so then I was like, okay, well, I had a big list of, you know, all the people in the space. And so I just went down and see if I could get them to, to give me like what their quoting um, system would be. Right. And so then I made these algorithms with Steve to, um, you know, to, to quote. And so, yeah, I think it was like, yeah, people weren't used to this. No one had done quoted manufacturing as an algorithm before, at least to my knowledge, maybe protolabs was happening. and I didn't even know they existed at the time, but not for, not in this particular way. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, that was cool. But it was also the first time I worked directly with factories, you know, and got to hear their problems, um, you know, and then, you know, people were like, oh, I 3D printed this, I want to injection mold it. And so the company that ended up buying us, Vistatech, they were a combo of like one of the biggest 3D printing shops and a, a like high-end injection molding shop. And so they're like, can you make a software to do injection molding quoting? And that is orders of magnitude harder. You know, that's a really hard problem. And we, we did not fully solve that problem at all. Um, but we did give them a, a quoting thing that would do it um, in a base way. But, you know, that was where I started getting into like, whoa, the manufacturing is really complicated. And whoa, these like old dudes are like really not looking at the current technology. You know, like it's so manual, like not just the quoting, but I looked at the factory as we had to figure out how it worked for the quoting. And I was like, wow, like it's just humans all the way down, you know, humans, you know, making the dyes and cutting the dyes and setting up the injection presses and, you know, the entire thing. It's just, you know. It's like soiling like grain, you know, manufacturing is made of people, you know, and I think that I looked at that as like, whoa, that's really expensive to do and really slow. If you look at this from a thermodynamic or physics point of view, it's like not that much, you know, plastic is cheap, metal is cheap, you know, relatively. Um, and so it was like, you know, that, those are to me just sort of looking at it. And that was actually the inspiration for Plethora actually was like, okay, all these factories are kind of living in the past. There's like no software helping them at all. What if we could do this? And so, you know, after trying to sell quoting software to individual factories, so that was one thing we did at, at CloudFab that was not successful. Everyone's like, yeah, fuck that. And like, I don't know if our quoting software was very good either, but you know, I think that it just, I was very annoyed at these old guys who didn't want to adopt new technology, you know? And I don't think I fully understood one that they actually did know what they were talking about and um you know the coding software was you know there's extreme variance on that stuff we weren't taking into account but i was also very annoyed that i just couldn't try it you know mm -hmm. and so 
you know, these two things of like lack of like really a big community in Pittsburgh and then also like needing to, um, you know, one, we couldn't get any money for CloudFab. So we were running out of money, had to sell it, you know, and um, and then I moved to San Francisco to kind of solve both these problems. Like, okay, there's a community, there's money and um, people who are like crazy big dreamer type folks are around. And like, I didn't realize that because I didn't even know. I was like, yeah, San Francisco, there's something there. Like, you know, I, I didn't know anything. You had just you had just discovered Thai food in Pittsburgh. Your mind had yeah, already been yeah. blown. So the fact that there's something above that is just even more mind blowing at that point. <laughs> yeah, funny. I know. Well, it's funny. You, you keep like you go to one hill and you keep saying the next hill. And so mm-hmm. like I went to Pittsburgh and I was like, wow, like. You know, I mean, it seemed like this crazy, you know, like, like urban stuff was pretty new to me. And then, you know, I I remember going to San Francisco and then being like, oh, wow, like, I I never seen such extreme privilege, you know, Um, it's like every car was new and the good version, you know, it's like, it wasn't just a Porsche 911. It was like the 911 GTS or, you know, whatever. Um, And I was kind of blown away. And then I was like, oh, I used to think when I grew up, I was like, you know, sort of like middle class or whatever. I'm like, no, I don't really think I was like, probably like lower middle class or something compared to like the averages. And obviously San Francisco is really out there, but um, I never like, you know, I never met anyone who went to any fancy school, never thought to even apply to a fancy school, you know? So yeah, it's kind of kind of funny. Like the privilege stuff is real, and I see that just in the differences in, in how I grew up, you know. Yeah, and, and we're 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 gonna jump ahead a couple steps here because later in the interview we're gonna talk all about plethora. We're gonna take a deep dive there, but as we dive into volition, I think there is some background that that plethora will help provide. As I understand it, plethora was a company that took a full stack approach, while volition is back to this marketplace model yep. like why did you decide to go this direction with your latest company i feel like you kind of bounce between both of those yeah, models yeah, and the companies true. that you do yeah it's like you know i would say that like the the plethora thing was like hey um manufacturing is a problem that is like very you know even if you do the manufacturing marketplace you can only do a little bit of cost competitive stuff and you can do convenience stuff. So like, you know, say Zometry now or Fictive, good, good examples of the marketplace model made well, they're really not reducing the costs that much or even like the go to market of this stuff. Like I'm sure they probably claim to, I'm unsure how much that's really true. I think they're just making a convenient interface to like manage a bunch of stuff and have access to everything without needing to know personally hundreds of shops, you know, which is great that needed to exist. But you know, those machine shops are still doing everything by hand, right? So if you want to make real change, you kind of have to affect how the thing works itself. If we're going to, you know, if I'm, if I'm on this mission to accelerate the technology, I'm, I'm grateful that these manufacturing marketplaces exist, but it's not deep. So that's why I went deep in plethora. I think the issue, though, is just like the extreme complexity of doing complete vertical stuff has made everyone else now doing this, you know, your form logics and Hadrian's now be like, there be dragons on that and we're not going to do it. Now, my reaction was, I'm trying to make the central company in the industry so I can affect the industry. Like, that's what I want to do. So it's not enough to make good technology if you don't have a good sort of like strategic market position to actually affect the industry, right? And so you need to get across everywhere. So at Plethora, we were like, okay, what's everyone buy? Like, a lot of people buy machining, you know? So let's get machining into everywhere that people buy it, which is like a lot of mechanical that buys machining. And um, once we scale that out, we'll have these plugins and everything. You know, that was a strategy. And we'll be able to do like all these new kind of tools on the design side in addition to like the DFM that we do on the design. And then of course, all the auto programming and, and execution on the factory side, right? So basically I was like, okay, Plethora was super hard to like get the tech right, which meant it was super hard to scale the ops in a profitable way. We can get into that later. And so I was like, oh, 
I like we found that like even just part sourcing because you know we were buying tons of stuff for the factory and for our customers when we would have assemblies and stuff and it was like that itself is hard and you know unlike manufacturing where manufacturing is this deep hard technical problem it's like you know logistics is hard but it is not automating like factories in some flexible way like in that it's probably like two orders of magnitude easier than that um you know there's a lot of warehouses there are no fully automatic factories um you know <laughs> so you know in the volition sense i was like okay what does everyone buy everyone buys bolts and you know all the things that make things up and it's like you just need to know about them you don't need to make them so like there's this huge physics and operational giant thing and so the volition insight was like i want to run the same strategy of get into all the places that you know people are designing things and help them and be that central company but i want it to be scalable and so i wanted to organize this industry because i thought that it was way easier to scale into it and there was still a big enough problem in this search thing that no one had done and i was like you know it's funny my my uh, my friend hardy maybaum he like i don't know 10 plus years ago started a company called grabcad which was kind of like a github for mm -hmm. hardware mm -hmm. and you know they eventually sold i think stratasys something like that and, you know, they were focused on a SaaS model. And I remember talking to Hardy and I was like, hey, man, why don't you just get all the components from all the people and then put buy buttons on it, you know? And like, that seems like another way to monetize. And he was like, well, we're focused on this, on this one thing, right? So, you know, fair enough. But, um, but that, that idea always stuck in my mind. And it was actually on the plethora roadmap. So in many ways, I was like, you know, I even had the conversation with one of our investors and he was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, what's that? And it was basically like the plan for volition. And he's like, oh, that actually seems like a better business. And I was like, yeah, I agree. This is when we were having such hard troubles, you know? Sure. Um, and so, uh, and so I was like, yeah, cool. And then, you know, once, once volition or once plethora was not going to work, um, you know, and like they had a different idea for the plan we can talk about. Um, I already knew I was going to start Volition to do this. So maybe take us through how Volition would work, you know, because I, I want to ask you, you said earlier, we're trying to organize the world's parts, right? Yep. How, how are you doing that? And maybe tell us in the context of someone that's using Volition, right? How is it going to make their life better today than the way we're currently doing things? Totally. Like, I mean, so what we found is that, you know, people that are typically like, say you're a mechanical engineer and you're making some prototype. And the first place most people go is seemingly McMaster card, right? So it's like people go to McMaster, type in whatever. And then if there's a good version of it, they're like, cool, add to cart, you know, and they, they build up this kind of um, sort of shopping cart, maybe with a few of their teammates together. Maybe they do a buy once, a few times a week. Um, you know, that that's the McMaster interface. It kind of is like if you had one vendor to pick to do everything, you would try McMaster, even though it's a very small percent of the world, but it is like kind of the, the cream of like, here's the normal shit in the normal mm -hmm. categories, you know? Um, if it's not on there, maybe you go to DigiKey or, you know, your favorite electronics person to have a sort of different thing. But after that, people just Google for stuff. So like, in a sense, we're replacing that Google, you know? And people are like doing a few different search modalities. Like one, they might be um, just looking for some part number they have. That's one use case. That's like interesting, but like not not as much like I'm interested in like, you know, they want to find like the underwater servo with, you know, whatever respect. It's like Google is horrible at that, you know? And so you might look at like, you know, like wash down ready servos or, you know, like you don't even know the words to type in, right? So people are like going around doing all this, the searching. So that's where we want to really say we're making a search engine that specifically is not just semantically good and different, which is true. Like our semantics are different than like a Google or an Amazon, but there's an idea of the taxonomy of, you know, like the size above a NEMA 23 stepper is a NEMA 34 and below is a NEMA 17. And there's this concept of relation and the two are different in their, you know, frame pattern and they're different in how many laminations or, you know, all this different stuff. 
you can't go on Amazon or anywhere else and search yeah. for that. So, you know, that's, that's really like spec based search and then images, right? So people would go on Google images and they would, you know, like people say someone calls it a clevis. One person calls it a D ring, you know, there's these different, different things for very similar types of parts. And that is not captured in semantics often, but you could type in clevis and go through all the images and find, Oh yeah, that's the thing. And then you click on it and maybe often it's like an Amazon link. And you would go there, you know, um, which is interesting. So it it may be another way. I, this is the way I'm thinking of it. It contextualizes the complexities of engineered equipment, so to speak, in parts that are more complex than what you'd find on other platforms today. Is that a correct way of saying it? You do this through pictures and um, relational aspects that allow people to see and select the right component, if you will. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we aggregate that together and harmonize it. And that's really the hard part, like harmonizing it. So when you say, you know, like to take the stepper example, it's like, okay, is it 200 steps per rotation or is it 1.8 degrees per step? Those are equivalent things, but like, obviously the search engine doesn't know that. Right. And so we have to line all that up. So when you say I want one, 1.8 degrees, it, it captures the 200 or whatever, you know? Um, so that, that's the kind of thing that we line up. And I would say that the modalities are like, you know, we support a part number search. We support a semantic, just write some shit in kind of search. There's an image based click around and all the icons kind of search. That's cool. And then you can start filtering. So people have different ways they want to do things. Like some people really do just want to see like, Hey, this, this part number, where can I get it? How much is it? Is it in stock? You know? And it's like, cool, we support that. But the hard part is actually all this like really in-depth, like kind of slicing and dicing different categories to say what really is the best thing for your application, you know? So so I've got one more question around Volition, and yeah. then you can add anything else you want before we <laughs> jump to, let's say, the next chapter of our interview. What's uh, we're, we're having this interview October 2022. Where do you see Volition going? Where do you hope it goes? And, and how do you see it impacting the industry in the coming year, years, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I would say that right now what we're focused on in this moment is we literally just started promoting this, um, you know, like a month ago. So the big part of a marketplace is to actually have stuff to buy, right? So we have a lot of, you know, I talked about like 9 million components or something, but one, they're not all fully organized yet. So we're still kind of chewing through all of them. Right now, I think about half of those are organized and we just made this major data breakthrough actually. So like, I think all that stuff will be done in like a month or something, which is sick. But, um, you know, so we're onboarding all these suppliers right now, trying to fill out the catalog so it's like useful for people. So that's, that's the rest of this year really is doing that. So then let's say next year we actually get that going. It's really going to be onboarding people and the inevitable like things they don't like about it and fixing it. Right. So I think that's going to be like Q1, Q2 is just getting, getting the thing actually spinning up and everything. But I think in the end, what I really want Volition to do sort of for the world is like, I want teams to be able to like have this really rapid way of prototyping and inside the CAD, right? Like just starting with designing, you're like, oh, I need to do a thing. And right now it's like, maybe you go over, we're trying to discover the perfect st servo or whatever. You, you've tried to find the 3D, maybe you don't have it, you CAD it up. You know, I want us to just be like, here's the CAD file. And then later you're like, you know what? I need, actually need the next size up. And then that means you need a different coupling and different, you know, all these other things. And it will just suggest it, you know, it's like, oh, you have the servo, you'll need this coupling, you'll need these mounting bolts, you'll need, you know, all this different stuff. And we just suggest it and say, import into CAD. Like, I, I want that kind of interface inside the design system. And then you hit, okay, buy it now. And like, you know, ultimately I'd love to integrate with folks like Azometer or Fictive or whoever else and do the custom stuff too. So like, I'm really trying to make like a print button, you know, for reality. That's like in the end what we really want to do. Um, but right now it's like, you know, we got to organize this thing. And we, we've actually found um, you know, the suppliers, like, I mean, it's probably like 70% of them want to do it, you know? 
Um, and I think the rest will come along once they can understand the channel conflicts are not actually there. But that's that's the thing. Like, you know, their sales guys want to get paid. They don't like the internet taking their money and totally understandable. So that, you know, they got to they gotta figure that out for themselves and we have a little bit of way of solving it. But yeah, I mean, in the end, it's like, I want everyone from an engineer making one of something to like a production engineer making the line to the supply chain person to be able to figure out how to explore this entire world, you know, just like we were like the infinite, infinite sort of GitHub of everything, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've worked with uh, channel sales for a long time as well. So I, I have no doubt you're working through and making sure those folks feel comfortable. All right. So uh, I guess a bit of an abrupt ending there on my part. You know, we literally recorded all of these episodes straight through as part of our two hour, let's say, podcasting marathon. So no transitions besides this one I'm recording now. And by the way, you can binge listen to these episodes. Honestly, they'll all be out in the next week. If you're listening to this right when it comes out, I'm releasing part two on Friday. Typically, these come out on Tuesday. So by next Tuesday, uh, you'll have all three episodes. So no need to wait. If you want to binge listen the same way you binge watch things on Netflix, this is the podcast for you. Anyway, if you want to learn more in the meantime, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 112 for episode 112. There's a lot of stuff there. I've included an article on Volition, the books Nick mentioned, a video of a long keynote and Q&A that Nick did a few years ago called How the World of Hardware Will Soon Transform Like Software. There's a lot of good stuff there, plus links to Permani Brothers, Church Brewing, and a couple of the other breweries that, that we gave a shout out to at the start of the episode. And by the way, if you want to learn more about Volition, Nick's new company, well, you can go straight to GoVolition.com to check them out today. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like this concept of, let's say, a three-part trilogy style episode, well, hey, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you straight to Apple Podcasts. You can leave a rating and uh, the review is great. It doesn't need to be longer than a couple sentences, but it does really help us out. Or if you listen on Spotify, I know a lot of you do, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. You can leave a five-star rating there for this show as well. Anyway, we got a lot more coming from Nick, so we're going to wrap things up here so we can get ready for the next episode. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again here very soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.